Welcome to Kainos Church Podcast. Kainos is a church for all people, from all places, for one purpose. If you'd like to learn more about Kainos as a new church plan or as a radical new way of life, visit kainos.church. And to support this ministry and further the mission, visit kainos.church slash support. so good to be with you here this morning in this place. Uh, I really am thankful to the Lord for providing this. It happened on a whim. We have been searching for weeks for a building, for a space to be inside uh, with basically no leads, nothing happening. And then all of a sudden, uh, through a relationship we have with someone uh, in Lilburn, this place opened up. And so, like I said at the beginning, we had a few days to make all this kind of turn around. And so, uh, as you journey along with us, if you choose to keep journeying along, you're gonna, the kinks will work themselves out, but it's going to take a couple of weeks to get there. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Uh, it's really interesting. We've been at a park, and I'm going to kind of miss the disruption of the park. Uh, I'm not going to miss the heat or the rain, but, uh, or the trains, or the planes, or the automobiles that come rushing down the side street with the loud tailpipes. Um, and yet, I have to say, I'm extremely grateful to the Lord for even for that time. Uh, we started doing that back in the fall, e- kind of a couple times a month, and, and then we started meeting weekly at Easter, and in all of that time, we've never had to cancel except for this last week. The Lord has been f- incredibly faithful to us by giving us good weather and by helping us, uh, you know, to keep moving forward. And now we're at Burkmar. And, and before we even jump, this is not part of the sermon. Before we jump in, I just want to, for those of you who have called Kainos your home, I, I, want to, um, I want us to take a second and just really reflect on the blessing that we have here. And also, I want to challenge us to have expectant hearts. Uh, A.W. Tozer was a pastor in Chicago. He says, um, God is looking for people with which he can do the impossible. What a pity that we only do things that we can do ourselves. And what Tozer is saying, right, is that God, is, God is, is the God of the impossible, and yet we as people plan to do stuff that we can accomplish in our own power. And, and so what I, what I want us to take away from that this morning is just this heart of expectancy that I think God wants us to have as we're here. We have several families that are traveling this weekend, people that aren't with us, whatever. But, but we need to have a heart of expectancy that God has brought us to this place at this moment in history for a particular reason. And that he wants to do something in us, and that he wants to do something through us. And so I, I don't want us to see this as just a media center or just another temporary landing place, but no, this is a God-ordained moment for us. And I don't know what God wants to do with that, but, but I think sometimes uh, the limit to which God does things often is kind of where our faith is at. We, we don't look to the Lord to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask, think, or imagine. We, we quote the scripture verse right? But do we really believe it? And is that our prayer? Is that the prayer of our hearts that, God, that you would meet us in a special way that only you can do it and that you would do some things here? And it may not look the way we have it conjured up in our heads, right? Well, the last year has not looked like anything I mapped out three years ago. Nothing. But God has given us some incredible moments. He's done some incredible things in your hearts and in mine. And so, as we're here, I want us to 
be thinking about that. Lord, what do you want to do here? What do you want to do in me? What do you have in mind for Kainos? Right? We're all on a journey as people. We're all on a journey as families, and we are on a journey as a church. Uh, we've started meeting weekly for worship at Easter, and in September, September 12th, we'll have sort of a relaunch Sunday. What does that mean? It just means a renewed sense of energy and excitement and visibility that we're here, we're in Lilburn, and we're going to uh, be a worshiping body week in and week out, and a body that serves and prays for the community. That's what we're going to do. And so September 12th is coming, and it's coming quickly. And so from now until then, we're going to continue to worship, but continue to sort of build momentum both in prayer and in the things that we're doing to prepare us for what God has for us here. All right, enough of the sidebar. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into our series. We've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, and we've made our way through the Beatitudes, and basically in the Beatitudes, we were looking at this idea of what does it mean to live the good life? How can we thrive? How can we flourish the way that Jesus has designed us to thrive and flourish? And God has shown us so much about himself and about ourselves in that process of looking at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. All these ideas that really allow us to be confronted with the character that God wants us to have as his people. The Beatitudes give us these character, stra uh, character traits of what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom, while the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, from here forward, actually from last week forward, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching us how to live, how to believe, and how to be and exist in the world. He's showing us how people with godly character think, what they believe, and how they live. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 to 32. Matthew 5, 21 to 32. And I want to speak to us from the subject of knowing your heart. Knowing your heart. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says this, You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so you're, if you're offering a gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and then you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will, not, uh, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Verse 27, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a man or a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his or her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. It's also really heavy, <laughs> but this is what happens when you go through the text, right? You land where you land. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that we have your word, and God, thank you that when we read your word, your word also reads us. Your word is living, it is breathing, it is active, it is sharp. 
and it does not return void. And so, Lord, I pray that wherever we are this morning, you would allow the seed of your word to fall on good soil in our hearts. Father, would you help us to see? Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to believe? We love you so much, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So here's a question. Do you know what's in an iceberg? Kind of weird. Do you know what is in an iceberg? Uh, the largest iceberg in the world is in Antarctica. It's 15 miles long. And it's incredibly fascinating because actually it's the size of a small Spanish island. But what's interesting about icebergs, if you study them, right, is that 10% uh, of the iceberg is above the water and 90% is below. So I'm going to think about this for a minute. The, the tallest iceberg in the world is 550 feet high. It's massive. Only 10% of that is above the water. What does that tell you? That there's a whole other iceberg, right, that's below the surface of the water. Uh, the reason I mention that is because I think it's a great illustration of what's happening here in our text. See, we know what the top of the iceberg looks like. It's obvious, but what's not so obvious is what's below the surface. And the same is true with how Jesus teaches the law, right? And it's really true of what he's saying about our own hearts. Because the bottom line up front, Jesus is asking us at the very beginning through this text is, do you know what's in your heart? Do you know what's in an iceberg? You can see the tip of it. Do you know what's in your heart? See, the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, it is a snapshot of what Jesus taught throughout all of his ministry. And yet it is also a real sermon that Jesus gave in real time to real people like you and I. And this week, we find Jesus in the same place that he's been every week that we've been in this series. He's sitting on a mountainside. He's been out preaching and teaching. Uh, he's gone viral on TikTok, as they say. Things are happening. And he goes to this mountain, and he sits down, and he starts teaching. And he's walking his disciples and people who are coming uh, through these different aspects of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the thing. In this text, we're dealing with a lot of things in a very short space. So I just want to tell you from the beginning, these are complicated and complex subject matters. We're talking about adultery and divorce, and uh, we're talking about anger and all these other things. And, and so the point of this sermon is not to give you a holistic teaching on each one of those. Each one of those subjects requires its own series. So there's going to be things that I don't say or nuances that I don't draw. And so I want you to resist the temptation to read into what I'm not saying to you. There's a whole lot here. What I want to do is I want to use this section of what Jesus is teaching us not to talk so much about anger and adultery and divorce and all of their nuances and specifics, but more about looking at how these things reveal the heart that is behind them. Jesus wants us to know what's in our heart in order to address what's there, right? And so last week, Matthew 5, 17 really sets the stage for the next few uh, sets of teachings. Jesus says in 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to give insight into the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. And uh, basically, he's talking about how they were relaxing or misinterpreting the law. And this is really critical to grasp because not all teaching is equal. There's actually, in Jesus' day, we're going to talk about this, there are sharp debates even about what these things meant. So you had the Old Testament law, you had the Mishnah, and you had the Talmud. And there, there's discrepancy about the interpretation and the commentary on what God was communicating through the Old Testament. And out of this teaching of Matthew 5, 17, that he's come to fulfill the law, Jesus gives us six examples 
of, of how to rightly understand these things. And so we're going to talk about the first three today, and then we'll talk about the next three next week. So here we go. Jesus talks about anger, he talks about adultery, and he talks about divorce. So in verses 21 to 26, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, and if you do, you'll be judged. But I say, if you are unjustly angry at your brother or sister, you're liable for judgment. And if you insult your brother or sister or say to them, Raka, you're liable to appear before the court of the council, which is the Sanhedrin. And if you call them a fool, you're liable to hellfire. Hellfire here is kind of a double metaphor. Yes, he is talking about, in one sense, uh, eternal judgment. But he's also referencing a place that was south of the city of Jerusalem a place called Ginnah, where they, it was basically a 24-7, 365 burning fire pit of garbage. See, in the Old Testament, there were some children who were murdered there, and it became a place of desecration. And from that point forward, it was a burning trash heap. It was a literal, tangible place that Jesus could refer to to say, this is what we're in danger of if we allow ourselves to go down this road. Jesus says, uh, uh, if you, if you, it's not that you shouldn't just murder, but you also shouldn't deal with your brother or your sister unjustly. You see, what Jesus is saying is that it's not the physical act of murder that God forbids and despises. Just that. It is that, right? Obviously, you can't walk around and kill someone. But it's not just that that Jesus is addressing. But it's the way we treat people with our thoughts, with our words, and with our actions that also carry weight. Instead of insult, your translation may say anyone who says brother, sister, raka. Raka is sort of a quasi-cuss word in Aramaic. And, and basically, it was uh, it meant to be empty-headed. Basically, when you called someone raka, you were insulting someone's intellect. You were calling them stupid. The term fool here is like calling someone an idiot. It's an insult against their character. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, no, you can't murder people, but you, ask, you also can't insult them. You also can't gossip. You also can't backbite. You also can't assassinate their character. So you may not kill someone physically, but you can kill them with your thoughts and your words. See, Jesus is not, al- not going to allow us to get off the hook. Oh, I haven't murdered anyone today. No, but how did you view the person who cut you off in line or the people who won't get on board with your plan or your neighbor that you don't like because they don't do X, Y, or Z? or your mother-in-law, or your sister-in-law, or your cousin, or whatever it happens to be for you. See, Jesus is, is getting to the, to the crux of an argument. He's saying it's not just that you can't murder people physically. You cannot murder their character. You are not permitted to destroy people with your thoughts and with your actions. And then he gives us two examples of what he's saying. And he really gives us application. He says, one of them is if you find yourself in conflict with a friend, stop doing what you're doing and go be reconciled. Now, we know that when you seek to be reconciled to someone, you can't control how they respond, right? But Jesus doesn't get into that. He says our responsibility as followers of Christ is to seek reconciliation. What people choose to do with that is their business. But you and I don't have the option to just allow relationships to fester and to just grow more discontent. We, we are supposed to take the step forward to seek reconciliation. It is our job to try to attempt to repair what's broken. He says if you find yourself in, in, a, in a conflict with a friend, this is what you do. But then he also gives us the opposite. What do I do with my enemy? He says if your accuser, uh, uh, if your accuser uh, has got something against you, try to settle things while you're still able 
before you end up in court, before you end up in jail, before things get out of hand. See, in other words, Jesus is saying, keep short accounts with people. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Be a reconciler. Don't let people misuse you or mistreat you or abuse you. Yes, but at the same time, Jesus is saying, as much as it depends upon you, control your anger, live at peace with all people. That's his teaching. What does he say about adultery? Same idea. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shouldn't commit adultery. You're right, you shouldn't. But I'm telling you that even if you lust after another person, you've already committed adultery in your heart. One is visible and can be seen. One is invisible and can't be seen. And neither are good, Jesus is saying. See, it isn't just what you do that matters, but it's about the heart and the mind that's behind them. And then he gives us two very good examples. If you're, it's a little morbid at first until you kind of peel back the layers. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Other places in Scripture it says, if your feet lead you into sin, right? Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. What he's saying is metaphorically remove the temptation. If your eye sees things that tempt you, don't look. If your hands or your feet take you into places that, that you're led to, into temptation, don't go there. Now, I'm going to say something that's very controversial. I know people who are lactose intolerant, okay? And people, I do know some people who are lactose intolerant that um, can't have ice cream, but they love it. So you know what they do? They take a pill that allows them to eat it, right? Let's think about this for a minute. Lactose is poison to your body. It literally makes you sick but you eat it anyway. Why do you do that to yourself? Well, you know what I'll do? I'll take this pill that'll kind of curb some of the effects just so I, because I want the taste, I, I like how it makes me feel so much that I'm willing to suffer to get it. I have my own version of that. If you know me well, you know that I can't eat onions. I cannot. I, it's almost like I'm allergic to them. They make me so sick for days if I eat them. But there are times, because I love curry and other things, when I will subject myself to pain because of the pleasure that I feel in the moment. What am I getting at? Why do we do stuff like that to ourselves? If you know it's not good for you, why do you go there? See, you may not watch pornography, but why do you watch those shows that lead you to places in your mind that you shouldn't go to? Why do you eat things or, or do things that you know is not good for you? And you know it's going to put you in a bad spot. And Jesus is saying, don't go there. Don't do that to yourself. Remove the temptation. Yeah, you may not be out committing adultery and murdering people. But are you harboring anger against people? Because murder doesn't start with just an act of killing. It starts with anger that's unresolved. Adultery doesn't start with, oh, I just wanted to go have an affair with someone. It starts with unresolved anger and emotions that boil up over time. And then temptation comes, and then slowly, 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 and before you know it, you're like the person on the beach that put their stuff here, they got out in the water, and the current just sort of dragged them along. You know how that works, right? You put your tent up, and everything's great, and you get out in the water, and the waves just kind of toss you around, and you look back, and your stuff's way over here on the shoreline. Jesus is saying, cut off your hand, tear out your eye, meaning remove the temptation. Don't watch that. Don't go there. Don't eat that. If you know it's going to make you that in that condition, or don't, don't put yourself in that place. Then he goes to divorce. 
He says, again, and again, this is not a holistic teaching on divorce, okay? We're going to cover that maybe at another time. This is just a specific thing that Jesus is addressing. He says, you've heard it said, to divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate. But I'm telling you, if you divorce her for anything other than sexual morality, you're making her a victim of adultery, the NIV says. First, you'll notice that Jesus is giving this particular part of the teaching only to men because women didn't have rights to divorce. He's not addressing that yet, but, but my point is, in, in what Jesus is saying, is he's saying, uh, uh, you've heard it said that all you have to do is give a certificate, but I'm telling you it's not that easy. See, there was a debate that was happening in Jesus' day. There were two famous rabbis. They were both teaching two different schools of thought. One was saying that if your wife did anything that didn't please you, if she burnt your food, you didn't like the way she cooked, cooked or cleaned the house, you could, you could divorce her. Just give her the piece of paper. She's gone. Another rabbi was teaching, no, that doesn't work, only if there's uh, immorality. Jesus is making clear where he stands on the issue, right? This is a literal debate that's happening in, in real time, and he's, he's entering in, and he's saying, no, 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 you can't operate that way. Well, w- what are we getting at? You see, the Pharisees were more concerned with how to divorce someone, the actual act of it, and Jesus is more concerned with marriage itself. You see, the Pharisees just wanted to make sure that they didn't, they didn't trip on the law. So the law says I have to hand a certificate, so just make sure I do that. And the heart posture and the actions and everything else behind it, they don't matter as long as I give the paper and I, do it, I fill out the document the right way. And Jesus is saying it's not about the document. It's about the covenant relationship that you're in. It is something to be cherished. It is something to be fought for. It is a holy institution. It is established by God. It's not something that you just get to change in and out of like you change your clothes. So what do we do with all that? How, how are these connected? Jesus gives this teaching, three different things, back to back to back. What's the connection? You see, one thing that you find if you look at this text long enough is that the Pharisees had a particularly narrow view of their definition of sin. And they had a very broad or very loose view of what it meant to be pure, meaning as long as I don't murder people, it doesn't matter what else I do, right? See, as long as you don't actually kill someone, who cares if you slander their character? Who cares if you gossip behind their back, if you mistreat them because they're a Samaritan? Who cares if they don't, as long, you know, as long as you don't actually kill them, then you can mistreat people who don't look like you or think like you or vote like you or act like you. See, Jesus is saying as long as you don't actually, you know, the Pharisees are teaching this idea that that it didn't really matter about what was happening on the inside as long as the outside appeared to be pure. As long as you don't actually sleep with another man or woman, who cares about what you think about them in your heart? Who cares if your eyes wander as long as your body doesn't? Sure, you can get divorced all you want as long as you follow the right procedure while doing it. The Pharisees were concerned with the letter of the law, but Jesus is giving us the heart and the spirit of it. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the law and he's pressing it into our hearts because God is not just concerned with our outward behavior. He is concerned with the transformation of our hearts. So how do we apply that? Three things. Really simple. One, know your heart. Two, guard your heart. And three, follow the trail. Know your heart. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet there are parts about your heart that you know. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. God has been kind to show you the parts of your heart that are still not where they should be. 
See, we live in a church culture often that values outward obedience more than inward transformation. The call of the gospel is not just outwardly obeying the rules, but it's to be transformed at the root of our being. And some of us have become too comfortable with our sin. We come here, we're polished, everything's great. We go to work, we're in front of our kids, in front of our spouse, but you know the things that you're wrestling with. And Jesus is saying, being outwardly obedient without being changed inwardly is not what he's calling us to. Know your heart. Yes, it's broken. But we have a God who is capable of repairing that, right? Secondly, guard your heart. And the prevailing message or beatitude of our culture is not to guard your heart, but it's to follow it. Go where your heart tells you. Do what you want, when you want, how you want. Live your truth. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not the heart of Jesus. That's not the the beatitude of Jesus. Jesus' word says, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from it. Everything. Long before you beat someone up or kill them physically, you have killed them with your thoughts and with your words and with your emotions. Long before you commit adultery on your spouse, you've already done it in your mind and in your heart. Long before you get divorced, you have already left that person mentally and emotionally. Guard your heart. Know your heart. Yes, it's broken. Yes, you're prone, but God's working, right? Philippians 1.6, who who began a good work in you will see it through. God is progressively making us more like Jesus. But we have to guard our hearts. We have a responsibility to guard our hearts from things that lead us astray. And then finally, just a very practical thing. Follow the trail. What do I mean by that? Have you ever watched a criminal? I love, I like like crime shows, particularly one where there's like a good heist. People steal artwork or they do some, I love that stuff. Uh, I love Fast and Furious. I love all the kind of crazy, anyway. Uh, here's my point. There's always a point, right, in, in, one of the, in all those types of movies or shows where when they're looking for the c- criminal, there's always kind of this line where, like, follow the paper trail, right? Follow the money. If you want to figure out who the bad guy is, follow the money, follow the paper trail. I think it's the same way. Jesus has given a little bit of a pattern for us here. If you want to know where things are really going wrong in here, you've got to follow the trail. Notice the progression he gives us. Unresolved anger and emotion. That's where he starts. And then he, he transitions to adultery, right? He, leads, he goes from uh, unresolved anger and emotion, which leads us to a, a wandering heart and mind. And as we start to, uh, as long as that, that emotion sort of festers there and we're just angry and bitter and frustrated, and then our eyes and our heart and our emotions start to wander, look what we do. It leads us to move our hands and our feet in a direction that is not pleasing to the Lord. Follow the trail. And so here's what I'm saying. If you find yourself struggling with with anger, right? A diagnostic question is, man, like, what am I thinking right now? What are my thoughts? What are those thoughts making me feel? What am I really desiring? And what am I going to do? It's your thoughts, it's your feelings, or your emotions. It's your desires, and it's your actions. Think about conflict with your spouse. You miscommunicate. You don't correct it. You don't address it. It just sits and it festers. That festering turns to anger. That angering turns to relational, more communication breakdown. It just just perpetuates itself, right? And if you kind of take a step all the way back, what am I really angry about? Oh, because you didn't do this or that. 
See, there's a, there's a progression that Jesus is giving us that if we follow it, it will help us eliminate conflict in our life. Why does it all matter? Well, it matters because you and I possess a heart that needs to be changed. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. If you're a Christian here, you know who you were before you encountered Jesus, and you've seen him working in your life since you met him. He who began that good work is still working. And if you're not a Christian, you know that, that you need to be changed. You may not think that Jesus is the way, but you know that there are parts of you that aren't what they should be. You see, we are all in the same boat. We are all desperately in need of change. We are all desperately in need of living an authentic life where our actions on the outside and our character on the inside match. See, we live in a culture that values outward action, outward behavior more than inward. But the Bible doesn't give us that option. Jesus does not allow us to have that option. He offers us a third way, a way in which one is not sacrificed for the other, but one in which all these things find their roots in him. You see, ultimately what the Bible shows us is that transformation isn't just possible, but it's promised to those who put their trust in Christ. And so we, we, we look at that, and it prompts a sort of response in us, a response to that type of promise and to that type of promise keeper. God is offering us in Christ a way forward where we don't have to be incongruent and where when things are not right inside of us, the Lord brings it to mind and he helps us to see it and he helps us to grow and change over time. The question is, will you let him? We all have things we want to hold on to. And when we do that, we're not living and walking in freedom. God is calling us to freedom. He's calling us to experience his grace and his mercy and his love. He's calling us to, to encounter righteousness himself, the living water, Jesus, who's the bread of life, who offers life freely and gives us complete freedom in him. Now, let me ask the question, like, could you imagine what it would look like if we actually lived like we believe this stuff, though? And I know we do, but, but do we? See, like, I, I, I think that the gospel calls us, right, to celebrate and to find freedom, and it calls us to experience God's grace and his mercy, yes. But that's not detached from who God's calling us to be. See, we just want grace, and we want freedom. But God is also, he, there's some things we got to do in that. It's a, it's, a, it's a balancing act. You can't out God's grace, absolutely, but yet we're still responsible for our sin. And so what Jesus does is he comes on the scene, he says, you guys have heard all these things they were taught and how they were taught, but do you know that I care more about your heart right now? See, I want to change you from the inside because you can obey people and not be changed, right? I learned that with my children. My children will behave. They'll do exactly what I tell them to do, but inwardly they're calling me an idiot. Like, I don't know why he's making us do that. And now Grace is getting old enough and she's bold enough, she'll start mum mumbling it a little bit, right? See, we want outward obedience, but, but God is calling us to inward transformation. Because you can obey on the outside and not be transformed on the inside. But if you are changed on the inside, you will obey on the outside. So may God make us a people who, who, are, who are not living double lives. May he make us a people who, who experience his grace through his word. And will God make us a people, may he make us a people, who value the transformation that comes with the gospel, and my prayer is that he'll help us to, to lean in it and walk in it, too. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, 
I, I have to admit, Lord, when I, when I look at the Sermon on the Mount, I, I wonder sometimes how things go together. But God, I'm reminded as we've walked through these Beatitudes that as you're showing us what our character is supposed to be, as you're telling us what it means to be salt and light, and you're telling us how you fulfilled the law, Lord, you, you then quickly pivot to make us confront our hearts. Yes, you're addressing real te- teaching that's happening in real time, Lord, the way the Pharisees taught about adultery and the way they taught about anger and murder, and the way they taught about divorce, Lord. It was not in line with, with where you wanted them to be and where you were calling us to be. And yet, Lord, I'm reminded that before we even get to those actions, you're, you're looking at a heart that's inside of us. Lord, that you want to change us from the inside. That it's not just about the things we do, but it's about the things we think and the things we say. And Lord, we know that. If, if you've been in church, Lord, most of us have, have, have experienced it. Lord, I, some of us have even come from legalistic backgrounds that have overemphasize these sorts of things, and yet, Lord, there's a right balance in your word. There's a balance that calls us to live in such a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. And so my prayer, Lord, is that where we need to be changed, that you change us. Where we need to be encouraged, Lord, from all the ways in which you have changed us, I pray you'd encourage us. God, where we need to be convicted, I pray you would convict us, Lord. And where we need to be freed up and liberated, I pray you would do that in our hearts. The point of your word, God, is not to drown us in shame or or guilt, but it's to free us up. It's to remind us that we are offered in the gospel something that that we desperately need, which is true life, real life. And so, God, I pray that you would, um, I pray that you would work your word into our hearts now. And I pray it in your name. Amen.